use this work for you? Welcome to Arnie Geddon. I'm Cam Smith. And I'm Tony G. And we're here this time to take on the movie you've all been waiting for, Around the World in 80 Days, or as many know it, the Contrabulous Fabtraption of Professor Horatio Huffnagel. Uh, yeah, we're going to try and get around this podcast in less than 80 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> now, Tony, we knew we were going to have to tackle this one eventually, right? Did we know it? I remember you arguing that we didn't have to do it. I think at the time I thought maybe this would fall into an episode we would do on Arnold Schwarzenegger cameos, perhaps. And uh, you were really insisting, like, no, no, he Arnold has a pretty big role in that. I think we need to do that one as an episode. Well, I think his role is sufficiently big that it warrants doing an episode on it. And also, I think it would be a shame for us to not do Arnold's last movie before going into politics. His last movie uh, before The Expendables. Right. And you know what? After watching the movie, I agree. We should do an episode on this movie. Like, this role is much bigger to, you know, fit into, like, the cameos episode. I think it deserved its own episode. Well, given that we're here now, I'm glad that you That's agree right. with me. No, you won, is what I'm saying. <laughs> so let's talk about Around the World in 80 Days. Now, Tony, this movie, I think, came out like it's a blip when it was released. I don't remember much. It was a big, fat, nothing burger. <laughs> yeah. A box office flop for the ages. But I'm curious, when this movie's released in 2004, were you interested in seeing it? Did you see it in theaters? I did not see it in theaters. Nobody saw this in theaters. This was uh, one of those movies that people get fired over. Theater owners didn't even watch this movie in theaters. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was... A... <laughs> well, they might have watched half of it. The guy sweeping the aisles for the popcorn at the end didn't even see it because he didn't have to go in because there was no popcorn on the floor. Yeah, it was not a well-attended film. Right. Um, I did see it later on, though. I saw it, uh, I think, on television, actually. Um, but it's it's been a while. This was actually a summer movie. This was a June 16th release in 2004. Um, I think I'm totally forgiven for not seeing this one. I was in Australia at the time, so, uh, you know. <laughs> and, they, and they don't have electricity or theaters or uh, gravity in Australia, of course. You would be surprised how few movie theaters you run into going up the coast. <laughs> it's like you'll find them in, like, your major cities like Brisbane or Cannes. But, like, I remember going, like, weeks without even, like, a television around. Yeah, uh, well, I guess I'm forgiven, too. I think I was actually in China at the oh, time. <laughs> So we both have our excuses. We both got out of the country, so we didn't have to watch this movie. So, <laughs> But you did see this movie on home video, I guess? No, I think I saw it on, like, cable television or something like that. Like, it was, uh, you know, a movie that was on on some weeknight. Uh, <laughs> you don't want to reveal it was a weekend? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. It definitely wasn't a, it wasn't a movie that even television would play on a weekend. It wasn't, like, Saturday night at 9 p.m., and you're just too embarrassed to admit it? <laughs> Yeah, my phone must have been on silent that day. <laughs> so, okay, so when you did watch this movie, 
first off, did you watch it because you knew Arnold was in it? That was one of the reasons. I actually thought he had a way bigger role. Okay. Uh, I, I mean, I also was a Jackie Chan fan. I was like, right. what could go wrong? We got Jackie Chan. We got Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, I'd heard of Steve Coogan at the time. I didn't really know who he was. But And there's also a lot of cameos and that sort of thing. I was like, yeah, looks like it's pretty good. Kind of up my alley. Right. And so when you finished watching this movie, what were your thoughts back in the day? Uh, well, I don't remember much about watching this movie, obviously. Right. But I remember thinking, huh, well, that's over. Right. And not really giving it another thought. It was not a memorable movie. I remembered very little about it, actually, except Arnold Schwarzenegger's scene. Right. Um, and a couple other scenes. But uh, it was not exactly chiseled into stone tablets in my brain. Sure. I'm actually kind of surprised I didn't watch it. Because I was a huge Jackie Chan fan around this time. This is when he's crossed into North American theaters. Um, I guess that starts around 96, I think, with Rumble in the Bronx. 95. I think it was around day 42. <laughs> yeah, like 95, 96 is Rumble in the Bronx. A movie I absolutely fell in love with. I remember going to the theater and just being so wowed by it. And I went on this real binge of watching a lot of the Jackie Chan movies. They were a lot of them re retitled here in North America, so the titles get kind of screwy. But, you know, I remember watching Super Cop and Operation Condor, um, Who Am I?, all these movies that were brought over, you know, dubbed and dropped at Blockbuster. Because that was the only way I could see these things back in the day was to find them at a Blockbuster. And uh, yeah, Legend of Drunken Master, which is also Drunken Master 2. What about you? Did you kind of go in the Jackie Chan? And we are, of course, talking about the now defunct video cha video store chain, right. not a Blockbuster movie. Right, right. And were you a big fan of Jackie Chan at the time? I wasn't a huge fan, but I definitely uh, would reliably watch his movies. Uh, I mean, it's pretty hard to argue with Jackie Chan as a physical performer if you're into action movies. Right. I think I went to, like, every Jackie Chan Hong Kong film here in theaters that was released in theaters. But when it came to the American stuff, um, I really, you know, I went and watched The Rush Hours. Um, you know, the first one was good. I didn't like the second two. Um, and I, I actually really enjoyed the Shanghai Noon and Nights movies. Yeah, I remember enjoying Shanghai Noon and Shanghai Nights. But other than that, I remember, like, I made a point to watch The Tuxedo, which was terrible. So I don't know why I watched The Tuxedo, but when it came to Around the World in 80 Days, I really turned up my nose. But I did. I have no excuse. Well, I can say I didn't see The Tuxedo. I think by the time 2004 rolled around and Around the World in 80 Days came out, my interest in Jackie Chan was perhaps waning, sure. but it was still there. Right. Okay, so this movie, as I said, opened on June 16th, 2004, and um, it uh, had a budget of $110 million. That's big budget back in 2004. It grossed in North America $24 million. Oh! <laughs> and for foreign, foreign will save a movie that's expensive. For foreign, they made $48 million. Whoo! <laughs> so, I mean... For a worldwide total of $72 million. Yeah, so like I say, somebody lost their jobs over this movie. Yeah, it uh, landed at number 97 for the year between The Life Aquatic Steve Zizou, which beat it by a little bit, and it was just above Agent Cody Banks 2, Destination London. I find it hard to believe that The Life Aquatic is that low, because I think nowadays it's regarded as kind of a classic. It was not a good performer at the time, though. There was a lot of hype for it. Wes Anderson had a lot of money to work with because the Royal Tenenbaums had been such a big hit and a critical darling. And Zizou did not get great reviews at the time, and it did not do very well at the box office. 
Yeah, but you are right. Over time, it has definitely gained a uh, cult following. Um, as for the top 10 of that year, uh, it was, you know, like a lot of the years we talk about, family movies and blockbusters and superhero movies. So at number one, you had Shrek 2, which I did see in Australia. <laughs> that was one of the few movies we went to in Australia. <laughs> I remember we went to that in Troy. <laughs> I'm just resisting making another uh, Shrek 2 cruise control joke, because I, <laughs> I think any time we talk about a sequel on this podcast so far, I've talked about cruise control. Right. Uh, number two, Spider-Man 2. I also saw that in Australia. Sp- was it Spider-Man 2 Cruise Control? <laughs> Number three, The Passion of the Christ. Cruise Control. <laughs> Number four, Meet the Fockers. Okay, I'm going to let the joke die there. Number five, The Incredibles. Number six, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Number seven, Day After Tomorrow. Saw that in Australia as well. Uh, Number eight, Born Supremacy. Number nine, National Treasure. And number 10, a movie that this movie has a lot in common with, The Polar Express. <laughs> we'll get to that in a bit. Yes. But uh, some other movies that were released uh, this year that are notable. Uh, number uh, 33, you had Alien vs. Predator. Uh, I'm sorry, did you describe that? You described that as what? What was the... Notable. Notable. Uh, yeah. There's no qualifier in terms of... How about no to that movie? Sure. Number 49, you had Hellboy, which is a movie I really enjoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, number 55, a movie we've talked about in the past, Chronicles of Riddick. Uh, number 59, Blade Trinity. Number 68, you have The Rock with Walking Tall. He is still climbing. He's still putting out movies at this point in time that no one really wants to see. But wasn't Walking Tall. I mean, it, he probably only had two or three movies under his belt at that point. Yeah, that's about right. Uh, Johnny Knoxville in that one as well, who was mm-hmm. in last uh, the last movie we did, uh, The Last Stand. That's right. Uh, at number 105, you had Torque. Which is a guilty pleasure of mine. I love Torque. It's also one of mine. I don't know if anyone else has seen it, but it's one of the stupidest movies I've ever watched. And at number 119, Bruce Willis, one of Schwarzenegger's big competitors, put out the whole 10 yards. One of the worst sequels I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, Bruce Willis was just entering his I don't care about anything phase. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I thought it would be an interesting comparison, though. This movie obviously did not do well, but... There was a, a earlier Around the World in 80 Days movie that came out in 1956. This movie uh, scored five Academy Awards for Best Picture, Screenplay, Cinematography, Editing, and Music. It was also nominated for Director, Art Direction, and Costumes. This movie, in the year of 1956, made $42 million. Tony, how much do you think that is adjusted? Oh, geez, I, I couldn't tell you. It's $582 million. Are you serious? I am serious. Wow. It is if you adjust for inflation and look at the t- you know the top grocers of all time, it is number 54 on the highest grocers of all time. Number 1 for some little bit of context, number 1 of course is Gone with the Wind. Number 2 is Star Wars. Down at number 117 is Terminator 2. So, Around the World in 80 Days was a much bigger phenomenon than Terminator 2. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I don't know if you've seen the the original Around the World in 80 Days. I have. Um, I have. I, I watched it ages ago. I should have rewatched it for this podcast. Could you? Like, were you a fan of it? Yeah, I was actually. Um, it, I think it's a fantastic film, uh, and it's interesting that some of the imagery in the 1956 Around the World in 80 Days is uh, more iconic than some of the stuff that's in the book. Like, the if you remember, the big centerpiece in the 1956 film was, uh, I think, a balloon ride. Sure. There is no balloon ride in the Jules Verne 
story. They talk about it briefly and decide that it's <laughs> totally impractical and I think needlessly expensive. Really? But to the point where it's it's now so iconic and so associated with this story that if you go to your local bookstore and I'm sure there's 15 different versions of Around the World in 80 Days uh, on the bookshelves, they'll, they'll probably have the pocket edition the hardback edition it's just one of those books at least a few of them are going to have hot air balloons on the front cover uh hmm. and it's because of that movie and it's because of the imagery in that movie that's associated with the story that's really interesting that you were such a fan of that movie i mean obviously it was a huge hit i did not like the original well let's back off i, w I wouldn't yeah. describe myself as a huge, huge fan. fan you're wearing I a t-shirt with that <laughs> balloon on it right now yeah i got a hat on that says 80 and i just assume that people know what that means you changed your middle name to david niven <laughs> Yeah, I, I had my birth date surgically changed to 1956. <laughs> yeah, because I did watch the original a while back. I went through and I watched every Best Picture winner um, from the Academy Awards over the last, whatever, 80, 90 years, whatever it is now. And um, this was, I think, one of my least favorite Best Picture winners in that it was like a big bloated star vehicle that did not really have any momentum. I just remember there was a scene... Where his, um, you know, uh, Phileas Fogg's assistant, I don't remember what his name was in that movie. I don't think it was the same, was it? The Jackie Chan movie? Uh, I, I can't remember. I know yeah. that I know that the name, well, I'm, I'm pretty sure it wasn't Lao Xing. But, <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, Passepartout is the name of the, I guess, the valet. Okay, that's in, probably what it was then. In the book, so I can't, I don't know why they would change it. Yeah, that's probably what it was. But there was a scene where he's, like, doing bullfighting, and I swear that scene was 47 minutes long. Like, it just... I just remember it dragging a lot. And you get a few of those best pictures around that era where they're just very long. But they look beautiful. Like, that's the one thing I enjoyed watching about it was the visuals. I thought the visuals were incredible in the art direction. It deserved those Oscars. Yeah, maybe I should go rewatch it because that's what I remember. I remember the visuals. I don't remember people sitting around and talking about the intricacies of world travel. And you look at some of the cameos in that original... Like, it has just a, like, murderer's row of cameos, and I just wrote a few of them down here. For comparison, for some of the cameos we'll talk about later, but in, you know, the original you had Frank Sinatra, Peter Laurie, Shirley MacLaine, Noel Coward, Marlena Dietrich, Buster Keaton, Red Skelton. That's just a few. There's a whole long, long list of names like that, like the all-stars of Hollywood. And, uh, well... This new one, you know, the 2004 one, not so much. But Tony... Oh, we got Rob Schneider. That's true. We did get Rob Schneider. Uh, now, Tony, we just finished watching this two-hour film. And uh, what did you think of it this time? I thought of it as kind of middling family fair, uh, where there was a few points, actually, where I genuinely laughed. I was kind of rooting for Phileas Fogg to make it there on time. But there was also a lot of points where... This movie fell flat. Yeah, like, I really love the big, colorful Disney live-action films of kind of the classic era. You know, stuff like Mary Poppins is the obvious one. Apple Dumpling Gang? Not so much that one. I knew you were going to throw that out. I knew it. <laughs> Am I that predictable? <laughs> but, you know, like Bed Dobbs and Broomsticks. The ones that are really colorful and imaginative. Mm -hmm. And I thought this movie was going to be going off the first, you know, handful of minutes. I thought this was going to be like a throwback to those movies. But I realized soon, I just wanted to throw it back. <laughs> like, this movie doesn't really bring a lot like you know it has wacky hats early on and that's kind of the sign of comedy desperation yeah a lot of wacky inventions yeah and it just 
you know, it kind of throws a bunch of stuff, you know, out there for art direction. You know, money was spent. There's some good costumes and stuff like that. It just has zero energy. And to me, like, that is a real problem because the uh, adaptation from the book is very loose. They've really turned it into a Jackie Chan vehicle where there's, you know, a lot of martial arts in this movie. Mm-hmm. You want a lot of wacky hijinks. The hijinks just feels flat. I do think it's because this movie was directed by Frank Karachi, who was a regular Adam Sandler guy. And he directed, you know, Wedding Singer, Click, The Water Boy, the Kevin James movie Zookeeper. This is not a guy with visual imagination. And this movie just feels very leaden because of that. And so, like, to me, I'm like, I get it. This movie's going for high-spirited, but it doesn't have the direction to pull it off. And so a lot of it just feels super flat. I enjoyed some of the cameos, and I can't really fault the actors. They did what they could. They had, you know, uh, enthusiasm about them. But even in the realm of, like, kind of middling Disney movies, this is pretty flat. It's no Alice Through the Looking Glass, though. It's not a disaster. It's just flat. Yeah, you know what? It's the kind of movie I think, like, a father could take his kids to uh, on a cheap Tuesday at the theater and sit through it and be not totally wanting to throw himself off a building. I agree. And then leave the theater and be like, well, uh, I'm glad the kids enjoyed it uh, more or less. Time to get home to the missus. It's probably how my mom felt taking my sister and I to go see The NeverEnding Story 2. Yeah, I think about when my mother took me to go see Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Those movies are good, though. At least the first one. I don't know if my mother shares that opinion. (laughs) I think that movie holds up, damn it. But yeah, like, we were born in the 80s, so our parents were taking us to these fantasy movies that were maybe a little middling. And I think this one falls right into that. There's nothing offensive about it. That's that I'll say. Like I've seen much worse, you know, Disney productions. I don't know if there's anything offensive about it in the way that we often use the term on this podcast. Like, sure. When we say offensive, sometimes we mean this movie wasn't unwatchable. Right. However, I think maybe through uh, a retrospective looking glass, there may have been some things that might be considered offensive about it. Right. In particular, sure. related to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Right. Okay. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. But in terms of sitting through it, it's not painful. Perhaps that's the better way to put it. So, Tony, people may have read the book. I don't know. But what is this movie about? Well, I'm glad you asked, Cam. Around the World in 80 Days is about uh, eccentric inventor Phileas Fogg, who makes a wager with the uh, Minister of Science, Lord Kelvin, who's the head of the Royal Academy. The wager is, should he be able to get around the world in 80 days, Mr. Fogg will become the head of the Royal Academy of Science. However, should he fail, he will never invent again and will destroy all of the inventions that he has. Along the way, he meets up with uh, his new valet, Passepartout, who is secretly on the run from the law because he's stolen a jade Buddha from a British museum, we'll call it that, uh, and he needs to return it to his village in China for some reason. I guess it's spiritual. They kind of explain it, but I didn't really follow it. It's pretty basic. (laughs) I think you kind of fill in the blanks, yeah. We replace jade Buddha with Sankara stones, and you pretty much get the idea. Yeah. Yeah. and, uh, you know, there's also a love interest along the way, Monique LaRoche. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, they go from place to place, 
ultimately with the destination of the same place they left from being London and uh, hijinks ensue. Lots of hijinks ensue. I mean, hijinks starts right off the bat in this thing where like Jackie Chan is shown breaking out of the Bank of England with the Buddha, shows up in the backyard of uh, Phileas Fogg and gets on this little roller coaster thing that spins him around and sends him on a uh, steam-powered, like, what is it called? Like a rocket backpack, basically. Yeah, it was actually very reminiscent of the Turbo Man scene in Jingle All the Way. It was, but during the um, scene where he's being wound up on that, like, roller coaster that's going around in circles, all I could think was, like, if this movie had been a hit, that would have been an attraction in Disneyland. (laughs) (laughs) like that's what it looked like to me i'm like this thing looks like you know sometimes you'll see that in disney movies that fail and go away like tomorrowland for example or something Mm -hmm. you'll look at a section you'll be like if this movie had made a lot of money i'll bet you disneyland would have had a ride built around that yeah sometimes i wonder maybe they put that in the movie just in anticipation of having a ride in disneyland i think they do and often they will reference existing rides and say a movie bombs, you'll see them do it again in a few years in an attempt to kind of give it some sort of cultural cachet for younger kids. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's quite possible. I mean, we could have all been on steam-powered rocket packs flying around Disneyland, I guess. Yeah, I mean, if you go to Disneyland, I'm wondering, can you buy tiny little Jade Buddha statues that look like the one in this movie? <laughs> That look like action figures. Yeah, what I'll say is this Jade Buddha statue, supposedly, I mean, it's in such high demand by pretty much every faction in this film, uh, I guess because it's very valuable. Uh, Yeah, they did a really poor job explaining why it's so important. Yeah, and it looks like the kind of thing that you would buy at a truck stop. It does, yeah. Yeah, like, I can understand why Jackie Chan's village wants it. If it's sacred to them, that makes complete sense to me. But, like, why this, like, scorpion gang uh, that uh, is working for Lord Kelvin is so desperate to get this thing is, uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe it's just worth a lot of money. I don't know. But I didn't think the reasons were particularly compelling. Yeah. So, I mean, let's get in the into the movie itself. Sure. Uh, now, this movie is all about globe hopping. That is the appeal of this story. Although this movie seems to think martial arts fighting is the appeal of this story. And, of course, when you're filming a high-budget, globe-hopping movie, what you're going to do is you're going to take your audience on a trip to different locations around the globe, aren't you? In theory. And you're going to film on location, and it's it's going to be spectacular, isn't it? In theory. Uh, well, how did this theory become a reality, Cam? <laughs> It didn't. <laughs> this movie shoots almost all of its, um, you know, real world uh, foreign locales in the back lot of the studio. Yeah, it's it's been a long time since I've seen a movie, and I don't want to take away from some of the visual style that this movie has because I actually think it's one of the stronger points of this movie. In places, some of it's really gaudy, and we'll get to that later. But I do agree, a lot of the art direction is at least fun. Yeah, or, or interesting or ambitious. Sure. But it's been a long time since I've seen a movie that looks more like it was shot on a series of sound stages. To be fair, my guess is the original, and I would have to go back and rewatch it, but I think there was a lot of kind of sound stagey stuff to the original, but it was more of that, you know, the 56 one. It's that era of like Technicolor and everything looks really beautiful. Whereas like this one, different era. And it just 
looks kind of weird or chintzy. Like, you know, you go to, like, India and you're like, that is definitely a back alley in a studio lot. Yeah, it's one of those movies, especially now, uh, you watch it on, like, a high-definition television. Mm -hmm. And it just looks like a film. It looks like a play, almost. Right. You know, it's like, nowadays, when I'm seeing a high-budget movie... I like to actually go to the locations because you get that authenticity that's a lot of fun. I remember even watching Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, which is an awesome movie. But there's a section where they go to India and it's all indoors. It was shot in Vancouver and you can feel it because they go to real locations the rest of the movie. Mm -hmm. And like that one, you're like, okay, guys, I get it. You kind of felt the opposite here. And I I might be wrong here because I should have actually checked the locations that they were filming in. But... I got the impression that they did the opposite of that here, which is everything was a soundstage except for China. Yeah, I mean, like, everything in China feels real. Like, we, we see characters interacting with actual elements of the country, you know, walking on the Great Wall. Um, the villages feel real. Like, the all of the, like, nature feels real, whereas, like, none of the other countries do. And, I mean, like, I'm guessing they probably had people go and shoot actual footage of the countries maybe like the second unit director or something like that yeah like that i would totally believe but in terms of like when we see the characters in an alley or in a location it looks like a set yeah and it makes sense in some ways for a movie like this um and we might be totally wrong but it would make sense like there's so many cameos in this movie of uh hollywood big shots that i can't imagine some of these people flying around the world for 30 seconds in a in a film like this. That's an excellent point, although I don't know if I would say Hollywood big shots in this movie. Because <laughs> let's just go down a list, you know, you kind of cued me up here, but let's just go up down a list of the celebrity cameos of the 2004 Around the World 80 Days. Sure. We've got Macy Gray, we've got Richard Branson, Maggie Q, Sam Hung, legitimate superstar, he's, he's pretty awesome, mm-hmm. uh, Rob Schneider, Luke and Owen Wilson. I'll give them Owen Wilson. Um, Mark Addy, John Cleese, Will Forte, and Kathy Bates. That's not bad. I don't know what you're it's talking about. It's not bad, but these are not the ones that light up you know, Listen. <laughs> the world. Sorry, I just threw my pen down yeah. here. I'm so frustrated with you. Um, we just recently watched Last Action Hero. Yes. Where the cameos were Little Richard. <laughs> yeah. MC Hammer. Yeah. Tom Noonan. Yeah. And I don't Jean- think Tom Noonan was a cameo. <laughs> well, he played himself. Oh, that's true. That's true. Yeah, you got and, me there. And Jean-Claude Van Damme. That's the... Yeah. So you got a list of four also-ran celebrities uh, against a list like this. These are all, I think... Pretty decent actors, and that's that's to say nothing about the the main cast in this film. I am not against any of these people. I'm just saying when you look at the stature of the cameos of the original, you sound versus like this you sound one. like you're against these people. <laughs> well, they're just not stars. They're going to excite people. Most, I would imagine, most audience members have no idea who these people are. Yeah, I'll give you this. I'll give you that most like children wouldn't be excited to see these people. There's not a lot of adults that are really getting excited about a lot of those. Well, I was a little bit excited to see these people. I mean, you wrote down the whole list while we were watching this film. I had to keep my mind occupied somehow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But what did you think of the way the movie implemented them? I thought it was really good. Uh, 
it's a movie where they go from place to place. They meet a colorful collection of characters in each place. Yeah. And these aren't big roles at all. These are sometimes only a couple lines. And so why not have it be a little bit fun? Why not have... Okay, which ones did you find fun? I found Owen and Luke Wilson fun. Did you? Yes. Okay, I thought, like, Owen Wilson was a little bit fun, but, you know, he's it's not well-written material. I thought that uh, Richard Branson as the balloon man You are good. so full of it. <laughs> There's no way you were excited about Richard Branson. Uh, why? I think it's interesting because he's, you know, he's like the guy who just did Virgin Airlines and there he is helping them onto a balloon. Oh That's my kind, God. kind of interesting. Sure. <laughs> Kathy Bates, I thought she was pretty interesting. She as the was queen, fun. Yes, as the I queen. agree. I agree. I think Kathy Bates was fun. Um, Mark Addy as the, uh, um, not that he's like a, a, a huge celebrity in family film circles, sure. but, uh, you know, fairly well-known actor. He, and he was pretty fun as the sea captain. He had a funny bit about, um, burning birds. I thought was pretty, that was, it made me laugh for sure. Yeah. Rob Schneider is the weird hobo that was running around, uh, thinking birds were after him. I mean, it was a little unhinged. I don't know if I'd call it a real comedic role i did not find rob schneider funny at all in this that's the thing like most of them weren't funny i just kind of go like oh yeah there they are that's nice yeah i don't know as far as far as cameos in movies go you could certainly do a lot worse than these actors or uh, <laughs> richard branson and, <laughs> and a lot worse than the roles that they're playing sure okay i'll stick with the original in terms of the cameos <laughs> I'll take the legends of Hollywood, thanks. <laughs> Fine. I think we should leave it there. I think we don't wanna... I think so too. But I want to get back to what you were talking about with the locations. Like I do think that is a real problem with this movie is that you are hopping locations and it should feel like everyone is an event. And I think the original did do that from my recollection is that when you went to each location, it really did feel like an event. Whereas here, just because of the fakiness of them, it was kind of like, yeah, yeah, just check off another box. What day are we on? Okay, cool. We're getting close to the 80-day mark. Like, they didn't feel like each location was bringing, like, a really exciting new energy to the movie. Yeah, each time they went to a new location, there was a very bizarre uh, CG animation transition. Yeah. Which uh, didn't make a lot of sense. Like, we were trying to figure out whether it was intentionally fake-looking. Well, it looked uh, like the Polar Express, which is why I referenced Polar Express earlier, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and we actually went back and we watched some of the deleted scenes. And one of the deleted scenes, and it, it, to be fair, it should have been deleted, was the opening scene is a dream sequence of Phileas Fogg, which has a lot of the imagery that we see throughout the movie but we don't really understand and it kind of establishes yeah. that anytime that they're making this transition uh it's a little bit of a, a dream for him not only that but yeah like he's referencing elements of his dreams throughout as well mm -hmm. and you and i really didn't understand what was going on <laughs> and then we watched that scene it's like oh well that actually gives context for all of this stuff he's talked about in terms of his dreams yeah, no, absolutely. It made a little, I mean, it's not like this movie was very hard to follow. No, no. And when you watch this scene, it's executed terribly. So I can understand why they cut it. But one element of this dream that does factor into the film is there is this, like, really weird-looking giant, uh, like, uh, rooster. and In pajamas. In pajamas. And it shows up in the intro. But that intro, of course, is cut. And it's on the alternates in the, uh, in the special features. But when you watch the movie, 
in one sequence, I don't remember where they're going. I think it might have been on the trip to New York, maybe, or San Francisco or something. I don't remember. But it does this weird Polar Express CG crapathon trip where it's like really ugly looking but then this bird shows up out of nowhere and it's just like like in in the like the camera and you're like what the and we both looked at each other like what the hell was that yeah because it wasn't in any other place in the movie i mean there's another part of the movie where uh the first time he meets his love interest in the movie uh monique laroche played by uh, Cécile de France. An actress I was not familiar with, but she's actually been in some stuff. She was in High Tension, uh, the French Mezrine series. She's yeah. done some things. Uh, yeah, I think she's better known in uh, Europe. I think she's Belgian. Yeah, I did see her in that Clint Eastwood movie, uh, The Hereafter, which I actually liked. Yeah, but I mean, anyways, he he, he meets up with his love interest. She's a, an artist at a, an art show who is um, being berated by, I think, Vincent van Gogh, it's implied. Uh, at one point, yeah. Yeah, um, and she has painted an, uh, an image that looks like it's drawn by a child <laughs> of a man flying through the sky with a chicken beside him, <laughs> uh, which we laughed. We thought it was a pretty funny painting. It uh, makes a lot more sense, though. It does. Seeing that cut scene now. It, it does. And what I'll add to is all of her paintings were quite funny. I really liked actually the angry clown with the balloon animal. That was good, yeah. Yeah, I thought the paintings were pretty funny. Uh, Yeah, like one thing that this movie, and it really kicks off in this scene, that this movie does a lot that does not work, at least for me, is it will point to something famous historical. So in the example of this, uh, Vincent van Gogh painting. And uh, Phileas Fogg is just like, well, that's lame. That's not art. The joke is that... Well, we know it's famous. And the movie does that a lot. Where characters just make like cutting comments about something that we know to be famous or true. And they have the vantage point of being at a point in time where it was ridiculous, I guess. And we just go, okay. But it's played for big laughs over and over and over and over and over. And I don't think it's funny once. Really, I thought some of the best parts of this movie were the, um, the old English bureaucrats and scientists... Oh, uh, I agree. Uh, and, and they do that a lot because they're kind of played as these pompous stuffed shirt windbags who yeah. are all bootlickers and sycophants. And I thought, yeah, I thought they were some of the best parts. And they do, they do that a lot, too. Sure. Like Jim Broadbent is like the leader of them all. You can tell he's having fun in his five days of shooting or something like that. I thought Jim Broadbent was great in this movie. He's definitely chewing the scenery and having fun. And, like, his second-in-command is Ian McNeese, whose name may not ring a bell, but he was uh, Ace Ventura's, uh, like, assistant in Ace Ventura 2, When Nature Calls. That's what I remember him best from, because <laughs> I have very low standards in movies, I guess. But he's done a ton of stuff. And, uh, you know, like, it's fun seeing these veteran British actors all kind of bounce off each other. Mm-hmm. We see Ewan Bremner uh, show up there. I guess he's not one of the scientists, but he's the crooked police inspector that they send around the world to try and stop Phileas Fogg. Ewan Bremner's probably best known as maybe Spud from Train Spotting. He's sure. he's kind of a Scottish character actor. What I'll add it to is uh, is Inspector Fix is actually one of the few characters in this film that was actually in the book. But he's not played like this. <laughs> no, There's no way. No, not at all. <laughs> yeah, like that's the thing. None of this really feels like it's taken from the book. It's just kind of the rough idea. And we should say this movie was um, written by three guys, all named David. Um, there's David Titcher, 
who wrote for the Librarians TV series uh, and some episodes of Punky Brewster and Who's the Boss. And you have David Benullo, who wrote an episode of The Dead Zone. And you have David Goldstein, who has one credit, and it is this movie. So, with additional credit to Jules Verne. Sure, but it's not like... Story idea, Jules Verne. This does very much feel just kind of like a mashed together... Guys, let's create a fantasy. Jackie Chan wants to be involved in this movie. Let's make a martial arts movie around this. And they did not bring in three of the best writers they had. Which doesn't surprise me just because Frank Karachi, through his Adam Sandler vehicles, didn't really have that great of writers either. Mm-hmm. It was generally you know, farmed talent that Adam Sandler liked, like friends of his. So here he's kind of got some sitcom guys. And to me, like all the gags and stuff feel very sitcom-y. But even like the overall plot of this, as we've referenced, the Buddhist stuff feels like something from kind of a cheesy TV movie. Like, it's just that these guys are working with a huge budget. Yeah, I'm always amazed. Like, I've talked about this before. I would just like to know really what goes on in Hollywood. Like, how how does this happen? How do uh, David Titcher, Benello, and Goldstein, and Frank Karachi get $110 million thrown at them to make a movie? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I mean, I guess Frank Karachi can command it because his movies had made a lot of money, but it was maybe an ill-advised project. But, like, let's talk about the main actors because we actually haven't really. What Jack- I want to add to is don't worry, we will get to Schwarzenegger. Of course. So, yeah, like Jackie Chan, Steve Coogan, Cecile de France. What did you think of these three? I thought they were, I mean, they were all pretty good. I didn't have issues with any of the acting in this movie at all, really. I thought, uh, actually, the acting in this movie was clearly the work of pros. Like, every person in this movie, with few exceptions, showed up, was given a character. It's basically a screen of character actors. Yeah. Uh, and they did they did the job. I mean, Steve Coogan at the time, I mean, he's kind of a weird choice to have uh, fronting a big-budget film like this because he's not really a leading man. He's kind of known more for his comedy. Yeah. Yeah, like, I know him best, like, my favorite things I've seen him in is that series of films called The Trip. You know, there's The Trip to Italy, the original The Trip. Um, I I really enjoyed those, um, but he's never really broken through in North America as a major box office star in any way. But he was, like, good in, like, The Other Guys, for example, with Will Ferrell. Yeah, for sure. And, I mean, really the star of this movie, or at least the, the where they were hoping to make their money, is Jackie Chan. Yeah, and this is through and through a Jackie Chan movie. In the original uh, film, Passport 2 is very much the assistant. Like, he has some personality, but he is playing second fiddle to the David Niven character throughout. Mm-hmm. In this version, though, like, it is a Jackie Chan film. So, it's about... Jackie Chan dealing with this uh, Black Scorpion group that is after him. He's the one that it opens the movie, escaping the bank with the item. The movie is about him. And yes, he does join Steve Coogan's mission, but he still is the center of the film. And, uh, you know, like, as a Jackie Chan film, did you enjoy this? Like, did the martial arts stuff work for you? Well, it definitely had the... Jackie Chan's signature martial arts. Uh, I mean, there's a stunt fight in an artist studio where he's throwing paint around. Yeah, that was fun. Kind of fun. There's uh, he gets in a fight briefly on a train and in a in a Chinese village, which was pretty fun. Um, gets in another one in front of the head of the Statue of Liberty. There's a lot of ladders involved, ropes being drawn up while sandbags drop, all that kind of stuff that you expect to see 
uh, in a Jackie Chan film. I think Jackie Chan did most of the stunt coordination here. Yeah. But with Sammo Hung there, even as a cameo, I kind of find it hard to believe that he, he wouldn't be dipping his fingers in at least a little bit here. Sure. So like a, like a lot of things with Jackie Chan, uh, the martial arts were good, they were impressive, but for some reason, and I don't know about you, Cam, I was able to appreciate the physical performances that Jackie Chan and the and the stunt people were doing, but like a lot of the rest of the movie, it just seemed a little flat and not having a lot of... Energy? Not having a lot of energy. And maybe it had something to do, they, they made pretty liberal use of wires, they toyed around a lot with physics, so it took away a lot of the impact that we kind of see in a lot of these movies but uh the the stunts were impressive but just i found didn't really weren't really propelling things forward yeah like it was weird and that like i've always thought it would be really cool to see jackie chan do a huge budget movie that really got to be his playground where he could just do anything he wanted with his imagination and amazing choreography and all the stunt guys that he's worked with through a big chunk of his career this movie should have been that and it just isn't like i think the problem is frank karachi he's a comedy director and comedy directors usually aren't the best visually and i think jackie chan needed someone who's really good as a visual storyteller you know, if you get someone like that behind the camera, collaborating with Jackie Chan, I think you are going to get something with energy that feels kinetic. And, like, one of Jackie Chan's set pieces should feel like it's building and, you know, slowing down, then building again and coming to these crescendos. And that never happens in this movie. They just feel like, you know, point A to point B. And you go, okay, yeah, I guess, you know, everyone looked like they did their work for that day. But there's no real exhilaration to it. You don't get that sort of joy of movement that Jackie Chan brings to, like, his cheaper movies. Yeah, well, what I'll say, too, I want to make sure that we're not overly harsh on this. Because we've definitely watched action scenes that were more poorly directed on this podcast. Yes, we have. <laughs> and that's not what these feel like. These these ones don't feel like, to use that word again, they're not offensive. No, no. It's just that they're, they don't have any energy. It's like you said. They're, they're, you know, staged maybe in some interesting ways, but it, they're just not paying off on screen. Yeah, some of them actually reminded me. I don't know if you remember uh, the film The Musketeer, which was kind of a wire foo. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you and I went to that together. <laughs> we did at a very young age. Uh, and we weren't that young. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were younger than we are now. Yes. Uh, and it, it reminded me of something similar there where you just have... All these impressive stunts being done, but without the energy that you need to kind of drive the movie forward and really suck the audience in. Do you think the problem is money? Is it kind of like comedy, where the more money you throw at it, the less effective it becomes? Because it seems like a lot of the greatest action movies that I think of, you know, a lot of the Jackie Chan classics like uh, like Legend of Drunken Master, or other stuff like The Raid, um, Ong Back, these movies are super cheap. Whereas when you th start throwing money... You get a lot more unions involved, you get stunt doubles, you get studios being very nervous about their actors, and I wonder if that gets in the way of these, like, unbelievable, iconic action moments that we see in those types of movies. Yeah, you might have a point there. Uh, certainly throwing money at movies, though, has made some pretty good movies. It uh, has. We look at our Schwarzenegger canon, and uh, it is not the cheapest ones that are the best. Sure. I just feel like... Most Jackie Chan fans, Jet Li fans, um, Chow Yun-Fat fans would say the movies didn't get better when they had more money. 
Yeah, and there's probably something to that. Yeah. Although Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon sure had a lot of money. That is true. That is true, and that is a great movie. Or Hero. Hero's good. We'll have to explore that further in our master's thesis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I thought like Steve Coogan was charming, but like they're very much trying to just make him a romantic lead in this film. And that's okay. Like I think Steve Coogan's funny enough and charming enough. He totally pulls this role off. But like the Cecile de France character, I think she's actually like very likable. When she shows up on screen initially, like she has that kind of spunky energy you want to see in this type of movie. But the character is really weak. Like, why does this character continue to stick around? The movie never really comes up with a compelling reason for that. Well, they establish that she's an artist and she wants to travel the world in order to get inspired. Sure. But, like, why is she so in love with this Phileas Fogg character? Because Against all reason. Because he's a dreamer. And she's a dreamer and it turns out that they want to make dreams together. But this does feel like the type of romantic lead that you would not write anymore. This definitely feels like a product of 2004. It's very simplistic. I'll agree with that. Yeah. You generally would have a more complex female character in, in a film like this these days. Now, I had a question for you. Uh, I won't dwell too long on uh, Cécile de France or her character, Monique Laroche. But there's a scene in this film, and this might go to what we were talking about, where I don't know if he would write this these days, where... Phileas Fogg and Monique and Passepartout are on a train. Phileas wants the train to go faster, so he goes up to the engine and is brought back promptly by the firemen, the uh, the coal shovelers. And they say, keep this man out of uh, where we're working or we'll throw him off the train. Uh, Phileas says, well, if they were to shovel in this particular way, uh, the train would go faster. Miss LaRoche or Mademoiselle LaRoche she says, well, I bet you uh, I can make the train go faster. And if I do, you have to let me stay with you and travel with you. So he says, okay. And then she goes up. They don't really say what happened, but the train just immediately starts going faster with these yeah. two surly dudes in the engine room. She comes back. Yeah. Uh, these two guys come out a little bit afterwards with big smiles on their face and say, well, if there's anything else that you want, mademoiselle, you let us know. And soon they're drinking champagne, presumably on the house. Right. Um, I don't know exactly what they were alluding to happened there. <laughs> I think it's something G-rated. <laughs> I have to assume. Yeah, I, I have to assume as well, but if it's so G-rated, they should have shown it on screen. It is true, because this movie is weird, and that, like, I still can't figure out who it was aimed at, because it's a kid's movie, like, it feels very kid-oriented, but it has all these weird historical jokes, it has constant scenes of characters getting drunk, and then that scene you're talking about... Where it's like, I guess it's for the adults to go like, <laughs> even though even they don't really understand what just happened. Because I was baffled by that scene. Yeah. I'm glad you actually brought it up. Um, but it feels like it, well, I mean, again, Frank Karachi, he works with Adam Sandler. So he really likes this kind of juvenile humor. And I feel like this is him trying to insert that into a Disney film. It's just like it's so toned down that you're like, I don't understand. What just happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that's not the question you want your kids asking you. That's right. Yeah, you don't want to explain that on the drive home. <laughs> because you won't even be able to answer it. <laughs> so, speaking of other things that are very difficult to explain. Yeah, well, I mean, we've, we've been at this, what, now for uh, <laughs> the better part of three quarters of an hour. Sure. Uh, so, 
And this is a Schwarzenegger podcast, so maybe we should get to Schwarzenegger. Yeah, as you said, this is the movie he does right before he heads off for politics. This is the big hurrah, and um, it was an interesting choice. (laughs) It was bizarre. Uh, He was nominated for a Razzie Award for this uh, role, by the way. Sure, and the movie was also nominated for Worst Remake or Sequel. So, double Razzie nomination with Schwarzenegger at the center. Yeah, but I will have you know, it won the Stinker Award for Supporting Actor and uh, Most Unwelcome Remake. So, it struck out at the Razzies, but it hit gold at the Stinkers. There you go. So, Schwarzenegger is playing Prince Happy of Turkey. Right. Uh, He hijacks or stops the train that the, the comrades are on, the companions are on, and takes them into his palace to show them a good time i guess sure the first time we see schwarzenegger uh, on screen he is sitting in his palace surrounded by belly dancers playing i don't even know if it's a real instrument or not if it is i apologize but playing some kind of middle eastern instrument in a very uh parody like manner yeah like here's the thing this movie is like you we've said it it's very middle of the road stuff throughout like it doesn't feel like it gets super weird it feels a little kind of flat as we as we've said i think a couple times but like the schwarzenegger section goes full-on bizarre it's weird it is super weird and i mean arnold schwarzenegger is wearing like a gene simmons wig and it is a absolutely batty performance and he's wearing as far as i can tell he's wearing uh, I guess, not blackface, but like brown face. <laughs> yeah, different time, I guess. <laughs> I guess, and it's interesting, because at the time that we're recording this, uh, our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, is just going through an international scandal for wearing brown face uh, you know, back when he was younger. And by and large, the consensus is in. You don't do that. Right. So... Uh, I just find it quite strange that before Schwarzenegger went into politics, his final <laughs> film performance is... Yeah, no kidding. A cameo appearance playing a, a Turkish sultan of some kind, prince, I guess. Was this a point in time you were okay to play the Turkish in 2004? If you weren't Turkish? Uh, I mean, I'd, I don't know. I'd have to go back and, and check my racism diary. Yeah, I have but... no idea. Because I don't recall any sort of controversy about this. Maybe it's because nobody saw it. <laughs> That's also probably true. <laughs> what, I, what I will say mm. is I did check. Well, I mean, maybe it's not that much of a stretch. Because uh, Istanbul is really just a very long day's car ride away from Austria. Sure. Okay. <laughs> you know, getting a, getting a motor vehicle for about 15 hours and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, so maybe that they're just trying to say they're so close that Schwarzenegger's justified in playing this. Sure. He plays the character of Prince Happy. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I don't even know what there really is to this character. He's incredibly vain. He obsesses over a statue of himself. And um, he wants to take uh, Monique as his seventh wife so he can have one for each day of the week. Let me tell you, that joke ain't happening now. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, that's probably a, probably a good bet. Um, the circumstances of... Well, everything that Schwarzenegger does is just very strange. There's like uh, a hot tub scene that's well, really weird. Yeah, they're sitting around, they're eating dinner. 
Uh, and they say, well, maybe we'll just have one glass in one of these innumerable we're getting drunk again scenes in this film. Yeah. And all of a sudden, this movie goes from family-friendly fair to this kind of polygamous proposing hot tub scene. All of a sudden, uh, Cecile de France is wearing what must have been one of the most uncomfortable bustiers I've ever <laughs> seen. Like she, Yeah. The, I don't think that was a very period-appropriate costume. Like, I feel like that was a costume designer being like, how do we take this vintage costume and make it, like, I don't know, more sexy? Yeah, I mean, not that Whereas they didn't do that for Jackie Chan or any of the others. Yeah, not that this movie shies away from anachronisms. Sure. And like you said, there's this this, uh, statue allegedly done by uh, Rodin in the style of The Thinker. Yeah. uh, Which is a statue of himself. I don't know if he's playing off of his own vanity... I have no idea. <laughs> but what I will say, offensive makeup and bizarre performance aside and... Casual misogyny. Casual misogyny. Is that this is possibly my favorite cameo in this film. And not just because it's Schwarzenegger. Oh, you are going to say of all time. <laughs> it might be of all time. I don't think so. But it might be. That's a possibility. Not Earl Bowen in Terminator 2? <laughs> that, that wasn't really a cameo. He, he's a main character. What about Terminator 3? <laughs> Maybe. Uh, b- but it's just so weird and it's so out of place. It's like this, you know, it's it's like this weird non sequitur in this film that doesn't make any sense. Like it just shouldn't be there. Well, it feels like the rest of the movie doesn't take any chances. Everything about it feels very by the numbers. Whereas there's nothing by the numbers with this Arnold scene. The whole thing is absolutely like some sort of drug trip. You're like, what am I watching? How did this get so weird? And the problem with this movie is it places this scene up really early in the movie. Mm -hmm. And so you really do get the sense, oh, I get it. Every time we go to a new location, we're going to have a guest star that takes this movie in a really weird new direction. And that never happens again. You never get anyone that's as weird and feverish as Arnold Schwarzenegger in this movie. Yeah, you look at other movies that are similar to this, these kind of travel movies, something like maybe The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, sure. uh, or uh, the Ted Danson, Gulliver's Travels, for example. Oh, the TV movie? Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is worth watching, actually. Right, I heard it was good. Yeah. Yeah. Where, that that's exactly what it is. You travel from place to place, you meet a colorful collection of characters, there's some kind of minor obstacle for the main character to overcome Mm -hmm. and once that obstacle is overcome they learn something that's where you get your character development from and on to the final MacGuffin. I mean I could sort of see how like Rob Schneider is supposed to play a similarly wacky role in his section but there's something about the Schwarzenegger one though is that it just feels so much weirder like it really does feel really really crazy Whereas I don't feel like the others, like, I think probably my second favorite is the uh, Owen and Luke Wilson section, is the Wright Brothers, where they kind of bring that stoner California vibe to the Wright Brothers. Like, it's a kind of a funny idea. But it also feels like they are working within the movie they that they have been, you know, cast in. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Schwarzenegger one feels like he came into this movie and just ran away with it. Yeah, that someone put a wig on him, slapped some brown makeup on him, and... Gave uh, him a few drinks. Yeah, he just kind of nodded while not listening to the director a bunch of times and then just had at it. Yeah, like it's really, really... I don't know if words can really explain how weird it is. The only thing I can compare it to really 
is some of the really, really bizarre flights of fancy involving Schwarzenegger in uh, Killing Gunther. But even mm-hmm. that doesn't have the weird level of <laughs> anti-PC comedy to it. Yeah, what I'll say is if you're joining us and you've made it this far in the podcast without watching the movie, and after listening to our podcast you decide, well, maybe I don't want to go watch it, you should at least go and track down on some online streaming service, YouTube or Vimeo or whatever, maybe a clip or that section. It's a, he's only in the movie for about maybe six minutes. Sure. Uh, and, and just check it out, just in order to complete your Schwarzenegger filmography in that sense. Right, yeah. I wish he'd been in this movie more, or I wish they'd at least had other actors with those bigger personas to come in. Well, maybe Mark Addy. Uh, he's probably the closest. You're not like, comparing the... him, though, in terms of presence. I mean, like, I wanted other people who had massive presences. Because, like, Arnold's an icon. He's a superstar, right? Like, he is a leading man. I think it would have been more fun to throw other major leading men or women in there who have very distinct personalities. And no offense to Mark Addy, but he doesn't quite belong in that category, at least for me. <laughs> I thought he was great in this film. I thought he was quite funny. I thought his character was was one of the funnier parts of the film, actually. <laughs> but you know, I, I agree with you. I think the danger there is uh, actually with Steve Coogan. You think about it, right? You take an actor and you put him next to Jackie Chan, who's really the star of this film. Yeah. And then you start surrounding him everywhere he goes with... A-list Hollywood superstars who are performing over-the-top performances. That's fair. And all of a sudden, Steve Coogan and Cécile de France, what are they going to do? Because they're not really the leads here. They're not... Sure. Yeah, I think there'd be a danger of the main characters or the other main characters getting totally buried. Or just turning into reactive characters whose whole job is to just react awkwardly to whatever the new superstar on screen is doing. Yeah, I, I that does make sense. Yeah. I just think maybe for my entertainment value, I would have preferred that. Yeah, no, I agree with you. But this movie needed more Christopher Walken. Oh my god. Okay, where is he? Anywhere. He's got to be New York, right? Sure. Like the mayor of New York? Yeah. Maybe get Max von Sydow in there as well. <laughs> Sweden? They're swinging by Sweden? Why not? <laughs> and he's still dressed like the knight in uh, The Seventh Seal. Or what about like Whoopi Goldberg as the mayor of San Francisco? Yeah, maybe with Helen Mirren as uh, the city councillor. Sure, sure. <laughs> I, I think he could make this movie pretty nuts. Yeah. Would that be a better movie or would it just be a more watchable one now? Because I think in 2019, when we record this episode, this movie is about as irrelevant as any movie we've ever discussed on this podcast. Like, no one is going to watch this movie really until the end of time. So I feel like even if the movie is somehow worse but filled out with these really bizarre over-the-top celebrity cameos that might make it more noteworthy yeah i mean i think that's fair to say cam although i think the danger is as well that eventually these celebrity cameos uh, will also become unknown i don't think anyone's going to be rushing out in 2049 to see this movie just because it's got a Whoopi goldberg <laughs> although i guess we're watching it because it's got an arnold schwarzenegger cameo in it. yeah i think if you fill it out with superstars they're far more likely to come back to it than uh you know mark addy and uh will forte no offense to those gentlemen who i found funny in other projects so you know i don't know um now when all is said and done do you look at this movie as a schwarzenegger movie like when you are thinking of the canon of schwarzenegger does Around the World in 80 Days belong to it, or is it sort of an offshoot? 
Well, cannon's a big word, Cam. That's right. But I'm willing to say yes. I, I think that he's got a big enough role in it that uh, it's not he's not just showing up on a dock and saying, Bon voyage, I'm Arnold Schwarzenegger. Or, right. Or, you know, giving an I'll be back like he has in some other projects. Sure. Or it's not like the John Cleese cameo in this, which is like a blink and you'll miss it kind of thing. Yeah, he has a character. That character serves a purpose. Uh, multiple scenes with that character. He's not there for very long. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wouldn't call him a co-star, but he is certainly an actor of significance in this movie. I totally believe he could have... If he really wanted to, and I don't think he cared, but had a credit where it was like, and Arnold Schwarzenegger at the end. Yeah, certainly. Although, I don't know if you noticed, but at the opening credits, they didn't even have his name at all. Right. And I'm wondering if they did that because there was just too many cameos to list everyone, or if they wanted to keep Arnold Schwarzenegger in particular as something of a surprise. My guess is they wanted a surprise, although to the best of my memory, when this movie came out, it was no secret that Schwarzenegger was in it. Like, I think... Maybe they knew there was just blood in the water for this thing at the box office. So they tried to kind of get it out there, like, come see it for Schwarzenegger. Similar to what they did with Killing Gunther. Yeah, I think a bit. And uh, I don't know if it worked. I don't. Well, obviously it didn't it work. It didn't work. But um, I was aware Schwarzenegger was in it pretty much as soon as this movie opened. And it wasn't from friends telling me. <laughs> so I don't know if you would call this canonical. Uh, when I think of canon, I think of uh, the big Schwarzenegger films that had theatrical releases where he was the top build star sure yeah so pretty much everything from 1982 to like 2003 and then uh the stuff after his uh his return from politics sure but does this fit in the canon i'd say so i'd call it a you know a minor schwarzenegger work were we doing a schwarzenegger scholastic journey you'd want to have this one somewhere as a footnote yeah like for me i feel like this is something of a curiosity with schwarzenegger like if i'm presenting someone with the list of Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. Uh, I don't know that this one's on it. It's kind of like you watch all the essentials and then it's like, oh, and he was also kind of fun in a cameo here. Yeah, it's somewhere between a Schwarzenegger film and Schwarzenegger trivia. Sure. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Arnold Schwarzenegger has had a very spotty track record for cameos. I can't wait to do that podcast episode because I feel like when you look at a lot of stars, they're really smart about picking their cameos to be in like high impact movies where like they get a big, you know, big like career boost out of it. And then there's the one Schwarzenegger picks. (laughs) (laughs) He's had some good ones. We'll get to that later down the road. And some bad ones. We will get to that. Yeah. So what are your final thoughts on, uh, on this movie on Around the World in 80 Days 2004? I don't know if I can give final thoughts, Cam, because all I can think of is if they ever actually get around to releasing journey to china in north america Mm. we'll have an opportunity to see jackie chan and arnold schwarzenegger on the screen together again maybe that's what will make this movie an important part of the schwarzenegger canon as like the companion piece to that other jackie chan schwarzenegger movie yeah we'll never know i mean we keep (laughs) we keep trying to figure out when this thing is going to drop uh i mean hopefully by the time you are listening to this podcast it's been released a great fanfare and has Repropelled Jackie Chan and Arnold Schwarzenegger to newfound stardom. Uh, given that it has released in Russia like a year ago, mm-hmm. uh, I think. Uh, I don't know if that's going to happen. Right. As far as this particular Jackie Chan Schwarzenegger vehicle around the world in 80 days, uh, I don't think there's much more to say about it. It's not a bad movie. It's not a good movie. It's just kind of a movie. If you're out there, if you have a couple kids, 
sure, throw it on on a weekday night. Maybe they'll like it. Uh, you might like it a little bit too. And everyone will sleep at night. But it's not something that you're going to write in your 50 greatest movies of all time. <laughs> but it's not going to make your 50 worse. I don't know how more comprehensive a review I can get than that. Uh, how about you, Cam? Yeah, like when I look at sort of the modern, the last, you know, 20 years of big, like, Disney studio family movies, this one ranks, I think, pretty low on their big budget kind of fare. I think they've done far better things. Uh, I guess, lucky for them, the Pirates franchise broke out, you know, like a year before this came out, so they could kind of focus on other things. Uh, but, you know, it is an interesting bygone film of that era where Disney didn't quite know what to do. This is the point where they're trying to appeal to male audiences because they've always been able to pull in the female demographic a lot with the animated films and their princess-type movies. But with the guys, they struggled, and they would keep trying over and over again. It's ultimately why they bought Marvel and Star Wars because they tried so many times with things like rebooting Tron, uh, this, to try to grab young male audiences, and it never worked. So I think it's interesting in that regard. But uh, as a movie... Eh, it's, you know, a library rental at best. But uh, I would say if you really want to explore this story, just watch the original movie. I, I think this one can you can skip over. And there's far better Jackie Chan movies to watch. And as Tony said earlier, watch the Schwarzenegger stuff online. It's pretty worth it. I wouldn't go that far. I mean, if you're at all interested in the story... Uh, Read or... the book. <laughs> <laughs> I'd put it as worth a watch, but... Maybe just barely. <laughs> sure. Okay. <laughs> so I think that wraps up Around the World in 80 Days, 2004. Tony, what are we doing next time? Well, I'm very excited about next week, Cam. Probably more <laughs> excited than I have been since our first episode. Okay. Because next week, in anticipation of Terminator Dark Fate, we are going to be watching Terminator Genesis. Yes. And it's the open secret on this podcast is uh, I wasn't around. I don't think I was in the country when Terminator Genesis was released. And I had I, never seen it before we started this podcast. And we decided very early on that I was going to save myself for this film. And I can't wait. There are dozens of times over the past couple of years where I wanted to throw this movie on and watch it. And I resisted just barely. Because I wanted this podcast episode to be special. Well, hopefully it will. You've seen it, of course. I have seen it, yes. It won't be special for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you can, of course, find us on Twitter at ArnieGeddonPod or email us at ArnieGeddonPod at gmail.com. Please you know, leave reviews for us wherever you get your podcasts. It would make us very happy. Prince happy, perhaps. <laughs> uh, Tony, how do they get hold of you? You can find me, Tony G. Tony like the name, G like the letter, at arnigan.com. You can find me on Twitter at Cam V is in Very Afraid of Birdman Smith. Okay, so we'll be back with Terminator Genesis. <laughs>